So we're continuing in this series on the heart principles. Uh, these are the five requests that Dr. Trueblood says we make of each other. And uh, last week we talked about the H, you know, hear and understand me. And this week we're going to talk about the E, and that looks like it's what? Read it. That was really weak. <laughs> I surprised them they weren't ready. Okay, let's, let's try it again. We can do this. Now you know, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, just so you know, the, the A is acknowledge the greatness within me. The R is remember to look for my loving intentions. And the T is tell me the truth with compassion. Um, so, so we're going to be working with this uh, as we move through the weeks. And the overarching scripture passage is Paul's urging to the church in Ephesus, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And let's pray. Mighty God, send your spirit to rest on us this morning to open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to what you wish to say to us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, this path, as we get into this, uh, it's important to understand when, he, when Trueblood talks about this, even if you disagree, don't make me wrong, he's not saying that there is not a place for uh, truth in the world. He's talking about don't make me as a person wrong. Um, you know, I have a, uh, I have a philosophy, uh, my undergrad degree is a philosophy degree, and you know, that's, that's one of those really useful degrees, you know, if you got that in a buck or two, you can get some coffee, uh, you know, so uh, it's very, but I, I started off as an engineer, I went to philosophy and then ended up being an MDiv, Master of Divinity student. And as part of that philosophy class, uh, you know, we took some courses in logic about, you know, this is how you think things through. And uh, in logic, there's, uh, there's things that are called formal fallacies or formal errors. And they look, they look a lot like a math equation because actually formal logic and algebra share the same roots. They start at the same place together. So, uh, you know, people are, oftentimes see that and think you're doing a math equation. Uh, and really, it's a way of working through a complex problem. Uh, but what we're more familiar with are things that are called informal fallacies or errors, which are ways that we don't think things through clearly. And it's been interesting to me because when I took that way back when, you know, I started thinking, oh, you know, you start noticing, oh, that argument doesn't really make sense. Oh, that one doesn't really make sense. And the bad thing is when you realize it's your argument, you know, oh, oh yeah, oh, I've been arguing that and it doesn't make sense, you know, and it's been fun for me because uh, Forrest also started off, my son also started off as an engineering major and then became a philosophy major and then did his master's uh, after that. So it's been fun when he's uh, been talking about, well, you know, blah, 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 and I'm going, uh-huh, 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 yeah. The most fun is when he realizes his own bad arguments and I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, yeah, there's a little humility in all this kind of stuff that goes on. I want to touch a little bit. These are called uh, informal kind of fallacies or, or logical errors. And these are ones that, are, uh, that, that I'm just going to lift up. There's a, there's a much larger category of these. Uh, but these are just ones that I hear people do a lot uh, and that, that are very noticeable to me. One is called category error. And that's just confusing uh, the categories of things. 
Probably the most common way in which we do that is by stereotyping. Uh, you know, you meet somebody from New York uh, and they're rude, and so you decide that everybody from New York is rude. Except, you know, of course, when we went up there with the choir, we found out actually everybody was very polite and gracious to us and very helpful. Um, but, but we do that. We confuse the individual with the group or the group with the individual and those kinds of things where we, we mix the categories and, and make arguments across them. Uh, there's an argument from the conclusion, which is also called a circular argument or begging the question, which is where you use the conclusion you want to reach to prove the conclusion you want to reach. So this is like somebody says, well, the sky is blue. And you say, well, how do you know the sky is blue? Well, because I'm looking at it. And the sky is blue. That's why I know the sky is blue. Okay, that's, that's a circular argument. The sky is blue because the sky is blue. Uh, there's an argument to moderation. And this goes back to Aristotle. Uh, and in Aristotle's dialogues, uh, Plato's dialogues, where he's talking with Aristotle, he's, he's talking about, you know, you, you have uh, different positions on a subject, and so you have two extremes. And Aristotle said, whatever's kind of in the middle is called the golden mean, uh, and, and that's the virtuous position. And that sounds good until you really think about it. So let's say you want to do an argument for moderation, and let's talk about stealing. Okay, on one extreme is, you know, it's just not okay to steal, ever. We just don't steal. And, and then the other extreme is, well, if I see it, I'm going to take it. It's mine. I can steal whatever I want. And so, you know, the golden mean between those would be, well, you know, it's okay to steal sometimes. No, it's not. I'm sorry, it's not. It's a, it's a bad argument. Uh, so there, there, there's places where that can work, but most of the time it's, it's, it's wrong. Uh, ambiguous terminology. You can have a word which has more than one meaning. And so you're in a discussion with somebody and you're using it one way and they're using it the other. And you're basically talking past each other. Uh, you're using a language that doesn't agree with each other. So, you know, somebody can say something about, well, you know, oh, so-and-so had a really big hit you know, on the radio a number of years ago. And somebody else says, yeah, it's really great to have a big hit. And then somebody punches you. Wait a minute, that's not the kind of big hit we're talking about, is it? No, no, okay, so, you know, you get this ambiguous terminology where we use a word that means different things. A false dilemma. This is where someone comes and says, you have either option A or option B, as if those are the only two options you have and you have to choose between them. Now, let's be honest, most of the time in life, if we're, usually if we actually look at things, there's also, you know, like six or seven other options out there, but they've crafted the argument in a way to try to force you to choose between one or the other instead of one of the other options, and it's, it's a false dilemma. There is the argument ad nauseum or proof by assertion, and, and argument ad nauseum is oftentimes what I call the Facebook argument. Uh, this, is, uh, this is where I'm just going to keep arguing the same argument even if it's wrong, and even if you know it's wrong and, and it's mistaken, and, and, and everybody knows that I'm just going to keep coming back to you with it, and hopefully if I just keep repeating it long enough and often enough, I will wear you down until you agree with me. Now, proof by assertion works a similar kind of way. This is the thing that goes like this. If I just say it long enough and loud enough and repeat it often enough, it must be true. Um, you ever hear that done lately? So, you know, uh, you know, this kind of proof by assertion. It doesn't prove anything. It's just a repetition. And then there is the argument from ignorance or argument from silence. Uh, an argument from ignorance is where you are making an argument uh, that's uh, based around a factual kinds of situation, except you don't really know the facts. You know, somebody says, well, it must be so because blah, blah. And you say, well, where'd you get that information from? Oh, I don't know. I heard it from somewhere. Well, yeah, but, but where? Where where that... I mean, the, their basic factual information is just wrong. 
Uh, and so it's an argument from ignorance. They don't really know what the facts of the situation are. And an argument from silence is one where you assert something that someone else hasn't actually said. So it's the kind of thing where, um, you know, I, I, I don't actually say no, so that means I must be meaning yes. Or I don't say yes, so that means I mean no, right? And uh, maybe you notice this with your kids when they were growing up sometimes, and they would do something, you go, why are you doing that? And they'd say, well, you didn't say I couldn't do that. I mean, I didn't say you could, it's just that I didn't say you couldn't, so that means obviously that you can't. No, 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 that's an argument from silence. Uh, you're taking something I haven't even spoken about and taking that as an assertion. Uh, argument ad populum is exactly what it sounds like. It's the everybody's doing it argument, you know. If everybody's doing it, surely it must be the right thing to do. Now, I can hear my grandmother back there in the back of my memory going, well, if everybody was going to jump off the bridge, would you do it too? And, and, you know, when I was young, I probably would have said, yeah, just to annoy her, right? Just to annoy her. And then there's ad hominem. This is when you can't win the argument uh, and you can't get there. And so what you do is you start to attack the person. Because if I discredit the person, that makes their argument wrong. And actually, there, there's just a logical error there. You know, you can you know, even the worst person's going to be right sometimes. Uh, and actually, uh, one of the interesting things is within the church, there's a long doctrine that was argued about for a while about, uh, well, what if you had somebody serving communion and, and that person was in the midst of some awful sin? Does that mean the communion is not effective? And the church came back and said, no, 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 no. Uh, communion is communion. God's in that whether the person serving it is, is you know, in sin or not. Uh, communion is still effective. But it's the idea that, you know, somehow or another, if I can't win the argument, I just attack the person. Uh, and, and boy, do we see this a lot. Uh, you know, children like to do this thing when, when they get frustrated with each other and they're arguing, they start calling each other names, right? You know, the name-calling thing. And they take whatever their favorite word is and they add head onto the back of it. You're a something-something head, right? You can fill in the blanks. You all know what I'm talking about, Right. And then we get older, you know, and, we, and, 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 you know, we still hear people doing the same things. And then sometimes we get frustrated and we even hear ourselves doing it. Where instead of dealing with the issue, we attack the person. And that's really what True Blood is getting at in this, which is that it's, it's not about the person. You know, if, if we disagree, we can disagree, but that doesn't mean we attack the person. Even if we disagree, don't make me wrong. I want to be really clear with you. This is not saying, please make me right. <laughs> this is saying, please don't make me wrong. It's not saying you have to agree with me. It's just saying, even if we disagree, don't make me a wrong person. When he was teaching this uh, one time to a, a group of executives in a company uh, and, and going through this particular part of the lesson, he said one of the guys that was in the group spoke up and said to him, I won every argument I ever had with my ex-wife. <laughs> but you did. Yep. And, and you won the argument, but you lost the marriage, right? You won the battle, but lost the war. And too often that's what we do when we get into these kinds of situations. If we, force the other per if we try to force the other person to agree with us, or if we attack the other person, we, we may win the argument in the moment, but in the long run, we've lost the relationship. We've destroyed the relationship. And that's what True Blood's getting at, is that, you know, even if you disagree with me, don't make me as a person wrong. You know, when, when we come into Scripture, 
when we start looking at how Jesus interacted with people, uh, it, it's interesting the way he handles certain kinds of things. There's a story in John's gospel where a woman is caught in adultery and, and, and the elders bring her before Jesus and they say, Master, this woman was caught in adultery. Uh, what should we do with her? And Jesus stops for a minute and he, he kind of squats down on the ground and he begins writing in the dirt. And, and we don't really know what he wrote. I mean, the scripture doesn't tell us that. And there's all kinds of speculation about what it was he was writing down there. I've wondered if um, maybe, depending on who this woman was, maybe she'd actually been with some of the other men. And so uh, he was writing their names in the dirt. Or maybe he was writing the name of the mistresses of some of those guys in the dirt. Or maybe he was writing a piece of scripture reminding them not to judge others more harshly than they judge themselves. I mean, I, I don't know. But as he wrote, the, the men began to leave one by one. And so finally, it, it ended up with just Jesus and this woman there. And he stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Now, it's interesting to hear in that, that at one time, he's still saying, go and do not sin again. He's recognizing the sin, but he's not making her wrong. He's not condemning her. And you see that over and over again with his interactions with people. He interacts with people that we would consider sinners and that were considered sinners back then. And he's calling them out of that, but he's not condemning them. Uh, and that's that's this whole thing. Even even if you don't, uh, you know, even if we don't agree, and even if I'm, you know, not making sense, and, and and even if I'm, you know, falling short of the mark, don't make me, don't make me as a person wrong. The matter of fact, when you look through the scriptures, about the only place you find Jesus really being harsh with people is when he's speaking to someone who is condemning someone else. There's this constant affirmation, you know, don't sin, but but. You know, I don't condemn you. That kind of constant affirmation. Uh, in, in the Gospels, there's a, this, this kind of chain of events where you see Jesus interacting with uh, the Apostle Peter. And, uh, you know, Peter is, is a key figure all through the New Testament. And uh, if you read the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark is considered to be Peter's Gospel as told to John Mark, who wrote it down. And John Mark, if you don't know, was the first bishop in northern Africa. And so, you, you know, Peter's a really key kind of character. And, and that gives me a lot of hope because, you know, Peter's the one on whom the church is, is, is going to be built. And yet Peter has, you know, like no filter between his brain and his mouth. So sometimes things come out that he probably shouldn't have said. And sometimes things are done that he shouldn't have done. And yet somehow or another, God can still use him uh, to do this great work with, which I think should give all of us hope uh, in those moments when we are struggling. One of the stories that uh, is told about Peter is, uh, occurs on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus has been teaching and healing on one shore. And, and as uh, the day winds down, he sends the disciples to go over to the other side of the lake and says, y'all get in the boat and head over there and I will join you later. Now, those of you who've been in Israel know that the Sea of Galilee is not huge. I mean, it's a big lake, but it's not huge. But it is kind of ringed by hills and mountains. And early in the morning, it can, be just, it can be just like a piece of glass. It can be so smooth. But as the day goes on and the weather builds and comes in off the Mediterranean Sea, you get these storms that develop. And they, they blow down through the passes and the breaks in the hills and the mountain where that wind gets funneled down and directed across the lake. And it hits the lake with tremendous speed and force. 
And so just in a matter of a few minutes, that light can go from being pretty placid uh, to being, you know, really, really rough with, you know, seven and eight foot seas uh, blowing across it at a high rate of speed. So he puts these men in the boat and they head out. And in the course of crossing the lake, one of these storms comes up. The water becomes very uh, rough, becomes very threatening. Uh, they're, they're afraid they're going to go under. Um, and early in the morning, uh, Jesus came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. Again, that do not be afraid uh, phrase when God or God's messengers or, uh, shows up. You know, don't be afraid. In that passage, that it is I in the Greek is the same as uh, in the Greek Old Testament when God speaks out of the burning bush to Moses and says, I am. It's the exact same words. And Jesus says, you know, take heart, I, I am. I, this is me, don't be afraid. And Peter answered Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Matthew doesn't record it, but, you know, I, I, I have a feeling that right at that moment, Peter had a thought, you know, I mean, imagine Peter was sitting there and he was going, oh, Peter, why did you say that? What is the matter with you? Right? I mean, you know, because they're in the middle of the lake and the wind's blowing, the waves are doing it and everything, and, and he just blurts out, well, Jesus, if that's really you, uh, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, okay, come on, and now what, you got to do it. You know, Peter, what, what are you thinking? But notice that Peter's the only one. Peter's the only one that's willing to say that. And so Peter got out of the boat, and he started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. I heard Mike Pilavachi preach a sermon on this uh, a couple of years back. And he, he, he was talking about this passage in here. And he said the, that address, when, when Jesus says, you have a little faith, why did you doubt? He always heard that as kind of a rebuke or a scolding. You know, you have little faith, why did you doubt? He says, where did I get that from? And I thought, I don't know, Mike, but wherever you got it from, I, I did too. Because that's kind of the way I've always heard it. And he said, well, let's look at the story, really. Right? I mean, they're in the middle of the lake, they're doing this, and Jesus calls Peter, and Peter is the only one of all the disciples, Peter's the only one that gets out of the boat. And Peter's walking across the water, and then he notices the, the wind and the waves, and, and he becomes frightened, and, and, and when he becomes frightened, he begins to sink. Peter knows how to swim. We know this because there's another story where Peter uh, puts his clothes on and jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore. So Peter knows how to swim, but he doesn't try to swim back to the boat or anything. He, he immediately, as he's going down, he cries out to Jesus. And he knows Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and catches him. And Pelavasi said, you know, he, he, he wasn't scolding him at that point, but it's, it's more of a voice of sympathy. Oh, you little, oh. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter, you were doing so good. Why did you doubt? And then he lifts him up. And if you've never thought about it, they walked back to the boat together, hand in hand. 
They walked back to the boat together. The first time I went to Africa, um, somebody told me and, and kind of gave me a little heads up about the area we're going into. And they said, you know, in this, this part of, uh, of Africa, it's, it's not unusual for men who are good friends or who are honoring each other to hold hands while they walk along together, walk along the road together. And it was a good thing because one of the villages we came to, uh, one of the elders that was there uh, started talking to me and we started visiting a little bit. And as we prepared to, to move on to the next village, he reached out and took my hand. I'm a South Texas boy. And in South Texas, men don't hold hands when they walk. Uh, we, we might hold hands to pray, but we sure don't hold hands when we walk down a road together. And, and you know, and I, I, you know, it was, that, was, that was kind of uncomfortable for me, you know, to be walking along there, you know, holding hands with this guy walking down the road. Uh, and, you know, uh, but I knew that if I took my hand away, I would be insulting him. Because he was paying me a compliment and, and honoring me. He, remember, he's, he's the elder of the village. I'm just the visitor. And he is honoring me and paying a compliment to me by holding my hand as we walk down this road. The people of the Middle East who heard this story for the first time would have understood that. That, that when Jesus takes Peter's hand and lifts him up and they walk back to the boat... Peter's not being scolded or rebuked. He's being honored. He's being honored. He might have gotten frightened, and for a moment he might have lost his focus, and for a moment he might have doubted. But Jesus doesn't make him wrong. He lifts him up and he honors him. In a similar way, there's a story at the end of John's Gospel one of the resurrection appearances. And prior to this story is the time during the scenes of the crucifixion where Peter has denied Christ. You know, Christ predicted, Peter, you know, three times you're going to deny me. And, and Peter said, oh, no, you know, even if everybody else does, I won't, you know. And, and so then there they are in the court while Jesus is before the, the Sanhedrin. And somebody comes up and says, hey, Peter, you, you, you talk funny you talk like one of those Galileans aren't you with that group and he goes oh no 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 you're confused not me I'm not one of them and somebody else says well now wait a minute I think I saw you with that group of people and he goes oh no you're mistaken that's that's not me I, I and I'm not part of that group and then a third person comes up and says no 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 I saw you with him too and Peter says I swear I don't know him In that moment, his fear and his anxiety overrode his faith and his love. Have you ever had a moment like that? Where your fear and your anxiety override your faith and your love? And so toward the end of John's gospel, there's a resurrection appearance where Peter and the others are fishing on the lake. Jesus appears on the shore and calls to them. Uh, this is where Peter puts his clothes in, on, jumps in the water and swims to shore. The rest of the disciples join them. They have breakfast. And then after breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There's a couple of really crucial things in that. One is, is, is for every time that Peter denied Christ, Christ gives him the opportunity to say, I love you. For every time that he failed him, he gives him a chance to affirm him. But there's another dynamic going on in the story that we don't see. If you read the story in the original language, uh, there's this interplay in the way that they're talking to each other. Uh, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me, agape, more than these? And Peter answers back. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, philo. Simon, do you, do you love me with a holy love more than these? And Peter's answer is, Lord, I love you with a brotherly love. And Jesus goes back to him and says, no, Simon, Simon do you love me with a holy love? And, and, and Peter says, Lord, I, I love you with a brotherly love. And then the third time, Jesus says, okay, Simon, do you love me with a brotherly love? That's when it says, and Peter was hurt because he said, do you love me with a brotherly love? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you with a brotherly love. I mean, even in that moment, even in that moment, in that resurrection appearance, when Simon cannot get the courage and the calm, I mean, he can't bring himself up to that level to say, I love you with a holy love. Christ comes down to the level Simon's at. Okay, if, if you can't love me with a holy love, can you love me with a brotherly love? I mean, Simon's not able to rise up to that level, so Christ comes and meets him where he is. You know, even if you're wrong and you're failing and you're mistaken and you can't make it, Christ doesn't make you wrong. He meets you where you're at. And he affirms you as one of God's creatures and one of God's children. Even if we disagree, don't make me wrong. Even if I fail, don't make me wrong. Even if I falter my faith, God still comes to me and raises me up and takes me by the hand and walks with me. And if God can love us in that way, can we not love each other the same? Let us pray. Mighty Father, we thank you for this great love that you pour out upon us. We know that we're going to disagree with one another. And we know that there's times that we're going to fail in our understandings. We're going to be mistaken. There's going to be those times when our fear and anxiety override our faith and love. And we give you thanks that in those moments when we are sinking in the water... Uh, that you reach out your hand to us and you raise us up and that you honor us with your presence. And so, Father, we ask that in the same way that you love us, you would help us to love each other. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.